doing a book of the Bible that is filled with lots of challenge. And, and then another lesson, and then a, hey, you should work on this, and then by the way, maybe this needs a little bit of help, and oh yeah, here's a hole in your Christian walk. And over and over, it was kind of like this adjustment, do something different, make a change in your life. And so there's a part of me that, I don't know if James would be okay with me doing this, but, but I like challenge. I tend to be more of a prophetic voice, pushing and moving towards change. And I realize at times I don't stop and just say, you uh, are fully loved by the Savior Jesus Christ. And nothing you do changes your position. This is all us trying to work out what it means to be a Christian in community together and what it means to be missional in the world around us. But there's a part of me that just felt convicted that you don't hear enough from me that you right now, as you are, not some future version of you, God loves you as you are. Whether we make these changes or not, we want that to happen, but you are loved and, and wholly accepted by Jesus as he is. In fact, here's something I used to do when I was a youth pastor many years ago. We did Ephesians. If you read Ephesians 1, it's filled with all kinds of identity statements. And I would be like, hey, instead of all the negative lies that the enemy wants to speak over you, I want you to memorize every single identity statement in the book of first, uh, Ephesians 1. And it says this, and I would have them just say it like this. I am chosen, I am blessed, holy, and blameless. I am adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and loved. I am chosen, predestined, marked, sealed. I am an heir to the throne of God. And then I borrowed from section two, chapter two. I am a masterpiece created for good works. All of those things are as true for you today as they were for the Ephesians when Paul spoke that over them, all right? And so I just kind of wanted to start from that, that space. <laughs> that being said, James has another challenge for us this morning. All right, and it's a little, it's a little punchy as it has been, um, but don't lose that. Like you hear the saying, like we are human beings, not human doings, and I think that that's something important for us to understand. We we need to rest knowing that God has done everything um, that is necessary for your salvation, uh, and then He wants us to work on a, a few things. Um, and so I wanted to start on this. Um, my wife, uh, I've, I mentioned it from uh, some of you are new, so maybe you haven't heard this, but I've mentioned this a few times. My wife worked for a private Jewish school in Phoenix for many years. Um, and uh, was very embedded in that. Our, our youngest kids got to go to preschool, and so they would follow some of the um, uh, uh, holiday traditions that they would have. And so one of my sons would come home from Mora. Uh, Mora is a, a female uh, uh, rabbi. So Mora Nora, which is her name and fun for a preschool <laughs> rabbi. Uh, uh, so Mora Nora would send challah bread home with, G with Jonah um, as he would come home. And we got to... Uh, kind of uh, get this little immersion experience into what this looks like, um, theoretically, as you read the scriptures, but then re in reality, as we saw what a modern-day um, Jewish community worked it out. And so one of the things that happened is um, we were, uh, my wife was going to a play later on that night, but they were putting on a production, the, the, the girls at the school. And what happened is I, because I had to pick up our kids who were attending the preschool um, and then exchange cars, take the kids home so Emily could stay and be a part of it. And the front desk, um, the lady who was running the front desk, I just kind of was doing some small talk with her and saying, hey, so are you going to be at, uh, you know, the play right now or tonight? And her joke just dead center looks at me with all seriousness and says, if the Lord wills it. And I'm like, Whoa. That's a little intense. Like, I don't think we need to invoke the Lord's will all of a sudden for this play that's happening in a couple hours. But she was serious. And Emily was like later, yeah, yeah, this is like, 
definitely baked into the culture of this place. They don't do or think or believe anything's going to happen unless the Lord wills to the extent that they're constantly reminding each other, hey, are you going to do that? You just made a statement of intention, and the answer is Lord willing. If the Lord wills, and only if the Lord wills. And it was a little intense, like me coming from the outside in, but, I, but, it, but it jarred me a little bit to think about it. And what I think is incredible is we do have this idea um, but there's kind of like, we, we lack this awareness or the reminder maybe even in the midst of our culture here that we intend to do this or we intend to do that and God may have other plans. And so every morning uh, on Sunday when we pray, one of the things we have been in the habit of doing is just praying, God, here are all of our plans. We, we've got the little, uh, you know, uh, uh, the app planning center that tells us everything is going to happen, right? First you're going to do a call to worship and then you're going to do song one and then Ken's going to come up and do his thing. And it has little times associated with it because it's part of the program. Um, and then at the end, what we do is say, okay, that's our plan. And Jesus, what we want is uh, Holy Spirit, if you have a different plan, we want to be open to that. And so God, make our hearts right so that we'll do whatever it is that you might want to do that could be completely different than what we just planned to do. And so whether or not I'm actually really re ready to do that, I don't know. Right? Because that comes out when mics blow up or, or little things happen that don't, you know, that, that we had planned um, that don't happen right. And so we have to submit ourselves over and over to that. And that's part of what we've tried to do. Well, this is what Uncle James is going to try and show us today. He wants us to understand um, as we review today's text, to put, uh, as we read today's text, to review our lives and consider where we might be making assumptions that are um, uncalled for. So James chapter 4, verse 13, go ahead and turn there if you have it. There are Bibles over here if you don't have one on you on the little um, tables in the back left and right. Uh, James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, we'll go all the way to 5, 6. It says this, now listen. That's an exclamatory statement. He's wanting to say, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is important. So this is what I want you to do. Look at your neighbor right now and say, listen up. Listen up. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to do this or that, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So what's James doing here? I mean, it's kind of like he's, belittling them a little bit. That's how it feels when we're in our cultural context trying to figure out things, when we have such a far proximity to difficulty, possibly, far proximity to death, possibly. And, and, and at times when, when you see in the first century where there wasn't modern medical, where there wasn't insurance, where there wasn't a lot of the conveniences that we have today, tomorrow was probably a little, a little, more, a little bit less sure than we would think of it today. And we can go into examples and examples, but what I want to do is if you think of yourself in a less resourced community today, you might still live in that mindset, all right? And so this is really speaking to that person on the other side who has the ability to feel like they are in control of the things going on. So James here, he's not belittling them. He's just trying to get them to have an understanding, a greater perspective that they aren't seeing yet. That there's an adjustment he wants them to make, this perspective shift that brings them into a more fully uh, well-rounded understanding of the reality that their lives here on earth are one more fragile than they might realize. 
and two, in comparison to eternity and the span thereof, is very short. And so what's a mist? I meant to bring it up as an object lesson, like take a water bottle, spray it, any kind of, you know, when you have like a cleaner or something, spray it, let it dissipate in the air. It's here for a second and gone. Well, well, I mean, but I'm doing all the things, I'm working out, I've got the right place, I do my checkups, okay, so two or three mist sprays, right? And in two or three seconds, gone. So he's wanting them to understand, what, what would you do if you were moving, and then you go back and find your roommate or your spouse, maybe your kids, putting up new decorations that day? You're like, what are you doing? Well, I really like this poster. Or, hey, this wall seems like it might be uh, needing a new shade of, I need an accent wall over here in this section of our house. Like, oh, I just told you, we're moving. We're, we're, le- we're only here for a couple more weeks. It's time to pack up. Our time is short here. What are you doing? And he's trying to get us to understand that there is a temporary stint of time that you are going to be on this earth. And so you shouldn't be thinking about this space so much as you should be thinking about the next space that we're moving towards. Not to say it doesn't matter, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. How you spend this time affects your eternal um, kind of uh, engagement and what happens there. And so this overall shift is something that James wants them to say, wants them to see, and then he wants to move them into now, as we're reading, into the heart issue. Uh, If you're a counselor, you know there's always an issue behind the issue, and when you find that out, there's probably another issue behind that issue, right? And so here's what's in front of you. I'm watching your, I'm observing your behavior. There's something behind it. And he says this in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. This has to be something of a traditional phrase. Because this is the New Testament. And the people that my wife were interacting with who had the same phrase did not have the New Testament. So it keys me in that there is some kind of idiom going on here, a Jewish phrase that was repeated, right? So so if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is what? Evil. I mean, I'm just making plans, James. I'm going to go get some milk. Boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Okay, think about an arrogant person. In fact, if you can, imagine an arrogant person in your mind. You're like, I can't do that at church. (laughs) This is what Oxford Dictionary says, a definition of uh, arrogance. It's someone who has or reveals an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. Well, if you just read what I just read, it doesn't seem very exaggerated. And we can look for some of that and find it. Maybe there is some exaggeration going on. It doesn't read to me to be very arrogant. It just seems like somebody making some plans or, or building out some kind of regular intention that you and I might have on a regular basis. Anyone in here who has a business or has been a part of it has goals set for the next year. I have goals for our church that I have set for the, the rest of this year and the next year. There are things that we want to see, but the thing about this, it seems like the, the regular plans, the regular intentions that we have, even as they are, it seems that when we realize how fragile and how temporary, how finite we are as the people making those plans, 
just our lives, the short comparison of this eternal existence, our lives in, in the plans and intentions that we have up against the plans and intentions and wisdom of the good God of the universe. It's arrogant to rely on anything that you think you might do. And so he's like, so, so look, you can say you're going to go into that city. I mean, if you have any reliance or trust or certainty that you're going to make however much money you think you're going to make there, you think you're going to be there for a year. This is what the text says, right? You think you're going to be, like, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So any security that you might put in your own intentions or anything at all that you believe might happen, including the very breath that you're about to take, including that you think you might see one more sunrise on this earth. Any confidence, anything that you might plan to accomplish, this thing, that, that is not submitted to the possibility that God could completely reroute you, is arrogance. He takes it further. He says it's boasting. Like you're, you're just talking out loud about things you don't even know could happen. It's evil for you to boast about these things. So categorically, anything we don't submit and surrender to, the possibility that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God might do something different, is categorically arrogant and evil according to what James just said. Now his sharp language here, as, and, he, and he's been in that mode for a while, right? So this, is, this shouldn't be too surprising. We knew, we kind of know this is what Uncle James is doing, right? We've talked about this, kind of like that guy, you, you're at the barbecue, you're at the family function, and it's like, well, you know what you should do with your life, and it's like, oh, okay, come on, James. None of us want to hear that, and so we have to surrender ourselves a little bit to this, but this to me is more like we're not hanging out just having, uh, 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 you know, barbecue, hamburgers, hot dogs in the backyard. This is almost like James, pull up, because I'm about to school you on some things. I want you to actually give me your attention. We're going to pull out the whiteboard. We actually have some things that need to be done, some things that need to be accomplished. And so maybe our context is a little different than what we originally depicted. But James wants our well-being. He wants your most abundant life. And so we want to trust that. And so his sharp language over and over again is meant to say, give me your attention. Give me your attention. In fact, this opens up with him saying, listen up. Give me your attention. Now, what he wants them to hear is the truth. N not what they want to hear. Now, some of you uh, know this, but I've been doing this. Um, uh, I go to this gym uh, for boxing. And uh, this week, I was sparring with someone who is incredibly on a much higher level than I was, Right? And I'm just like taking punches left and right, learning all of the flaws and everything that I've been doing over the last few months. Every single one of them. And he's like, so how'd you do? Because I came off of a different week where I'm like, yeah, hey, I think I did pretty good. Now he's like, now how you feeling, man? I'm like, all right, cool, man. That's coach. Great. Cool. And he's like, but listen, this is what I want you to know. It is better that you find out the truth here and now than when you step into the ring and someone just exploits every flaw that you have in there and takes you out. And there's like, all right, thanks coach. My, 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 um, my cynicism or, or my sarcasm changed tones to, a, to an actually grateful, man, thanks. This is a better environment. We need to find out the truth now so we can work on those things. Otherwise we'll get into a situation where you can't do anything about it and you will be exploited for it. So this is your sparring partner. 
He's not just your uncle. He's not just a teacher. He's your sparring partner. And, and, and this is what I want you to see, that life is the harsh teacher that tells us the reality of the truth that we live in. So if you trust in your relatively good health and had a health scare, you learn the truth in that moment. I can't tell you, in our last church, the average age was 65 plus. I did all of the, the adult ministries. And I cannot tell you how often I heard this phrase where somebody said, I want to build my, my financial profile just a little bit more. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work two or three more years and then retire. And how many times I watched someone, and people in relative, that phrase, very, we're, since we're in relatively good health, we're good. Their anticipation is I'll have good 10 years to do retirement things and watch people's health decline quick. Over and over to the point now I say that as wisdom. Look, man, I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what relative health you think you have, but I watched this happen over and over and over. I don't know if you've trusted in your housing security, but then lived through 2008 and had a wake-up call. As everything, the bubble popped and every financial institution collapsed underneath, underneath something that, that we had actually propped up so much of our economy on. If you thought you were going to work on the week of March 15th, 2022, I remember having a phone call with one of our, who was our elder then, Charlie, and we're both in the same seat. We're thinking Thursday, dude, this is so blown out of proportion. Come on, like, we're good. We're not, I mean, nothing happened. Friday morning, he gives me a call. He's like, wait a minute, I think we need to rethink this. I'm like, well, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was about to call you, and we completely changed. We're canceling Sunday, and then we didn't meet in person for months and months and months. So if you thought you knew what the next week was going to look like, COVID-19 told you something different. I had calendar reminders pop up left and right. Hey, there was going to be a meeting this morning. Nope. Oh, you're going to have all your worship leaders together. And it's going to be fun. You're going to make some plans of how you guys want to build into the... Nope. I walked into my office and saw all the things I was going to do that next week still sitting on my desk. But sometimes we need to learn the truth. I want to read verse 15 again. It was the last verse I already read. It says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And so James is describing this idea of a sin of omission, right? Sin of commission. You've probably heard this before if you've been in church circles. If not, you get the, the concept. If you commit something voluntarily versus you do something by, uh, you, uh, instead of uh, doing something you shouldn't do, you don't do something you should do, right? And, um, and so I love the, the way the Jewish New Testament says it's a almost more serious sin than the sin of those who are uninformed. In this specific situation, the sin is to announce plans as if we could control all the circumstances, failing to acknowledge that God is in charge and our plans depend on his will. So that's kind of a, a, a Jewish roots perspective. And so the idea is now that you know, live accordingly. Live with humility that comes with recognizing that your assurance comes from God, not from your own means. Now, verse 5 is going to take everything we just learned and apply it very specifically to a, a group of people. Verse 5 says this. Now, listen. Once again, listen up. Turn to your neighbor and say, listen up. Do it one more time. Turn to the other neighbor and say, now you listen up. <laughs> James says it twice. Listen up. Don't be arrogant. Now, twice. Listen up. Now, listen, you. What does it say? You rich.
rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Jeez. I want to read from a commentary. It's called True to Our Native Land. It's kind of a, 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 an African, a, a built from an African descent kind of perspective. Um, but I think you'll appreciate this. It says the material in 413 um, through 17 should be understood in close connection with the material in 5, 1, and 6. Both of which open with the literary marker, come now. This common ancient literary technique shifts the subject matter to a series of warnings addressed directly to the business merchants and the rich. And so listen, what they just said is all the force of everything we just learned is going to come on this group of people. No one opts out, but the, but the force of this wants to be applied to a very specific group of people of which this commentary says it has had a lot of interaction in America with. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So, so once again, it's, it, let, let's, I always try to keep the literary function behind you. It's the same exact lesson that we just learned, all right? Don't trust your wealth. Don't trust in your ability to insulate yourself, right? So, so don't trust in your plans. Don't trust in your means. Now wealth. Don't trust in your wealth. Don't trust in your ability that you can insulate yourself from calamity through riches, through insurance, through soaring bank accounts in this world. Because why? Exact same reason. It's temporary. It's way more fragile than we would like to think it is. And the nature of it is just a mist on this earth in light of eternity. But we do trust in our finances. Amen. I mean, you got to. We hold on tight. In fact, isn't it strange how we have anxiety because we don't have things so we accumulate things, and we hold on to them. We have anxiety, worrying about, oh, we're trying to get this, we desire it, and then when we get it, we fortify our lives with all these assurances to protect them because we are held captive by the anxiety that we might lose the things we just acquired. And so we buy alarms and security cameras, try to make sure it's as protected as possible, and in so doing, run from one fear right into the arms of another. You know the phrase, you run from a bear right into the jaws of a lion. Is that a real phrase? I might have just made that up. <laughs> it's true. If you're around a bear and a lion, I guess. James continues to point out this group because uh, they're not only trusting their riches, they're actually taking advantage of other people. So it says this. Verse 4, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Is this language sounding kind of familiar? It should. I'll point it out in a little bit. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So, so think through the history of God's people, because they have always lived in one form of captivity or another. We can go Egypt on this. 
We can talk about Persia. We can talk about Assyria. We can talk about Babylon. You can jump forward to the days of Jesus and talk about Rome. And you can talk about Greece. That every context wherein we are learning about what it means to be a Christian is almost always, almost always, there's almost no references to God's people living in a majority context. Almost always living in the context of captivity and how they're supposed to act in that context. And so Reverend Dr. Raymond Rivera, he's uh, somewhat of, uh, I don't know, kind of like this, this, uh, this bit of an OG character in, in the ministry of city uh, kind of life. So he's in Queens, New York. I think he's downtown in Miami now. Um, and, and, and so he is this older gentleman who has written a book uh, called uh, Liberty to the Captives. And uh, what I did is I watched a lecture by him and didn't realize how much it resonated. So I got his book and wanted to check it out and see more about it. And he pointed this out. He's like, look, every bit of this, every step that you go always kind of brings us to this point of understanding that we need to have a theology of captivity. So he puts out this lecture. He's, he's you know, kind of on this circle to preach in all these different areas. And, and this is one of the things that he points out that I think is so powerful. One of the greatest ironic tragedies found in the rebellion of God's people is that when we are repeatedly freed from captivity, we almost always inherit the values of the oppressors who held us and we start oppressing others. So, so you've heard me say this in different ways. As a, as a, it's harder to get Egypt out of God's people than it was to get God's people out of Egypt. Let me say that again. It's harder to get Egypt out of God's people than it is to get God's people out of Egypt. And so they spent 40 years in the desert trying to undo the way that they understood power. And you see it as Moses is trying to smash the rock. You see it as they rebel and try to take control and say, hey, I'm going to collect all the manna I can. And God's like, no, 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 that, that was how Egypt handled you. I'm going to take care of you every day. I'm going to provide water just as you need. I'm going to give you, you need only to know the next step. Trust me. I love you, trust me, I am not Pharaoh. And so what you have over and over is this idea of, of God for 40 years trying to get Egypt and the influence of Egypt out of the people, out of the Hebrew people that God has rescued and pulled out of captivity. James holds nothing back when he says this, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So, so now you're in a position where you're actually having to employ others and take care of others and treat others with a certain level of equity and treat others with the level of what needs to happen. And he's directly mirroring that phrase, cries out, and God has heard their cries. He is quoting Exodus. He's mirroring the words of Exodus when God says, I have heard the cries of my people, and then what does he do? Well, Pharaoh got the warning. He got the let my people go. I'm sure defensiveness came in the middle of that when someone comes to you and says, let my people go. And you believe you are the most powerful. You believe you are the most secure. You believe you have the most control over the universe. Then he got some plagues. And so James here, he's not, I mean, this isn't even very veiled. He's just directly quoting Exodus, saying to them, I'm sending you a warning as well. If you are going to act like the oppressor, you better remember what God does to them eventually. 
Do you see the weight of what James is trying to create in this moment? And it was true then, it was true later on as, as, as they were trying to kind of work these things out. We can look at our history and see where things have happened. It was true when the colonizers stole African people out of their homeland and brought them here. It was true when we wrecked the lives of Native Americans along the way. The banner of manifest destiny. Okay, so here is my point. Not to just say, woe is us and who are our, 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 uh, America um, and how it started. We could go that route, and that's probably a conversation we should have. But what I want us to say, though, is if we can see over and over God's people making this mistake, not realizing it. Making this mistake and maybe ignoring it. Making this mistake and saying, but it benefits me just enough, I can't say no. Then it, it, then it teaches us today to hear the warning. And to echo the words of the psalm that says, search my heart and teach me if there's anything in my day right now, that any grievous way within me that needs to be corrected, what is true of us today? Where is it that we might be acting out of arrogance? Where is it that we might be leaning on our wealth? Where is it that we might be even taking advantage of some so that it benefits us in this day? Where are you playing a part? In the local and think global. I mean, we're a global system now. What buoys the American lifestyle at the cost of others being mistreated or unfairly compensated for their labor? You can check the labels, but it might cry out against you. Take part in certain freedoms that maybe others are bearing the chains for. Maybe we take part in privileges while prejudice exists around us, disadvantaging, disadvantaging black and brown communities around us. Like the list goes on and on and on. And so what I want us to do is to call our hearts to come under the warning because there is something like what we do here matters because God's paying attention to it. In these verses that we're about to read, I think it's in the next couple chapters, you're going to see how James is continually concerned about the end of times. Like, Jesus is coming. He's at the door, i.e., it's, it's not as long as you might think. And so you need to do what you need to do on this earth. So don't get too attached to the benefits of this earth, eternity, but also do what you can to offset the, 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 uh, the disadvantage, the poor. We talked about the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, because eternity, it properly puts a de-emphasis on certain things and then a re-emphasis and then a double-down emphasis of the things that we should do in our day in light of eternity, not letting us off the hook for it. So brothers and sisters, we are here but for a little while. The things we do now have eternal implications, and may we hear the voice of James, and may we heed the warning that he posed in the first century that applies to us today, because we of all people know the freedom we have in Christ Jesus for our sins, not just in the, in the social landscape of what we've done, but that there is a great oppressor that we call Satan the enemy. And we have been freed from that. Let us not tell the lies of that oppressor. Let us not inherit the traits of that oppressor. Let us not take on the tongue of the accuser, the one who would have us entangled in the temporary things of this world at the cost of eternity. And may we be freed to be like the Father in heaven who loved and liberated 
May we live with eternity in mind, longing for the day when he will come back and the great liberation will take place in its fullness. Be inspired to that. This isn't even just a push away from don't be like this, but be inspired to be like the liberator who has liberated you. Amen. Let's pray. Yes, Lord. Yes. And so, Father, I thank you. Um, do what you want. <laughs> maybe, maybe in this, we don't even have the fortitude to get ourselves there, so we need your intervention. Maybe this is one of those areas that we need conviction, but God, let us stand shoulder to shoulder with those. Let us know that we have, as, as Philemon states, Who is my brother? Who is my sister? Who is my father? Who is my mother? And let that compassion drive us to say, not in my day. This inequity will not last in my day. This arrogance will not last in my day. So God, we fully submit, we fully surrender to whatever it is you have for us, Lord. God, allow conviction to settle in, but not in a way that causes us to just walk around with empty guilt, but a kind of conviction that allows us to be prompted to see something better, greater, more powerful, more like you, more like your kingdom happen on this earth, that we would rejoice with all people around us. We thank you for telling us the truth so that it doesn't have to happen later. Help us to make the adjustment, Lord. We ask for this right now in Jesus' name.